From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The head of CDOT, the State Transportation Department, joins me on my commute. Shoshana Liu wants Coloradans to have more choices than to drive in a car alone. If you look at big, dense cities and how they get people around, you know, they tend to hit a breaking point where driving is sometimes not the best option. Take a ride with us as we talk buses, electric cars, scooters, and climate change. Then, what's old is new again. The next lunar missions won't use a shuttle, but a gumdrop capsule. And the Orion spacecraft is being built in Colorado. Later, why the district attorney for Colorado Springs has called for a grand jury in the Devon Bailey shooting case. And a Colorado bee that rocks. It builds its nest in sandstone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Many of us start our days with a commute. For me, it's in a car alone. But on a recent drive to work, I had company. Hi, Shoshana. I'm Ryan. Good morning. Nice to see you. Shoshana Liu leads the Colorado Department of Transportation. We met outside my home in central Denver, and she agreed to talk roads, transit, and climate change on my drive to CPR's studios in the tech center. It's 13 miles. Sometimes it goes fast, 20 minutes or so. Sometimes it's so slow you feel like it'll never end. To rush hour we go. Lou grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, worked in the federal government, and at the Rhode Island DOT before coming west. I realize we're in a car, but my first question is about getting around in any way. Car, bike, bus, light rail. What frustrates you most about transportation in your own backyard? I, like many other people, don't have as many options as I would like in my own backyard. You know, I took the bus to your house this morning, and, you know, it would have taken me nine minutes to drive, and it took me half an hour to take the bus. The reality is that if you know, for options to be sort of viable for people, they have to be efficient. It's not just about speed. Sometimes if it takes 10 more minutes to get there, but you can read a book or catch up on your email, you might do it. You know, if you have to transfer, like I did, to get to your house, you know, it becomes less of a viable daily commute. So that was her commute to my place. Now on mine, we're headed past the Denver Botanic Gardens. The city recently installed a crossing here. Pedestrians push a button, lights flash, and they can cross without having to wait for a traffic signal to change. It makes me wonder, with population growth on the front range, is CDOT's goal to get more people out of single-occupant vehicles? If you have a one-for-one match with new people in new cars, congestion gets worse, pollution in the air gets worse, and just the quality of life is not the same as in a place where there's sort of more efficiency. Let me pick up on something you said there. If you've got each new person moving to Colorado with a car and using that car. I hear you say that's not sustainable from a congestion point of view or an environmental point of view. Is that what I hear you saying? It's not sustainable. And, you know, I think the congestion on the road and the pollution in the air are sort of different manifestations of some of the same thing. Even cleaner vehicles have an environmental footprint. There is kind of a pivot point as a place grows where you know, the scope of what has gotten people around in a less populated place is not quite the same as in a bigger, denser city. We've heard the governor be a big advocate of electric cars because they're cleaner. But I hear you saying the electric car is not the panacea. I, I too, am a big fan of electric cars, but, uh, you know, they're not a panacea. And, 
car for car, you know, they have a lot of potential, particularly as the energy mix that they use you know, becomes cleaner. But at the same time, you know, if you replaced every internal combustion engine with an electric car, you know, you'd still have the congestion on the roads. And, you know, you'd still have an environmental impact because, you know, whether it's the manufacturing of those vehicles or the fact that they draw power from the system, there's kind of no free lunch. Speaking of congestion, we're driving down University, which is how I get to I-25, and then down to the tech center. University is moving rather well this morning, I have to say. we got an early start. Yeah, if we had waited even 10 or 15 more minutes. We'd have more quality time together. <laughs> oh, that's a kind way of putting the traffic, Shoshana. You know, for so long, I mean, CDOT used to be known as the Department of Highways. That was until 1991. But now multimodal transportation is a bigger part of its portfolio. Bus lanes on 36, bus service across the state. How does CDOT see the future to reduce congestion and to steer people away from this kind of one-car, one-person mentality? Well, I think an important point to start with is that, you know, regardless of whether you're taking a bus, a car, you know, a scooter, a bicycle, or walking, you know, you're relying on the same foundational system. The roads that we use you know, need to be strong, they need to be safe, they need to be in a state of good repair, regardless of what technologies we're using to get around them. That said, these spaces that comprise our transportation network are being used for an increasingly varied set of technologies. And with these changes that we're seeing, I think CDOT kind of envisions the space that we manage as being you know, nimble. The world looks different than it did five years ago, let alone 20 years ago, and you know, I can't tell you which of the transportation technologies that are sort of coming to fruition now, you know, are going to be the predominant ones 10, 20 years from now because it's changing so fast. You know, what I do know is that none of them want to get tripped up on potholes. Critics will hear any talk of multimodal transportation and they'll say, gosh, that comes at the expense of road expansion, that the solution is to add more lanes. Maybe they look at I-70 through the mountains and think, gosh, if there were only more lanes, it would be better. What do you say to that? I mean, I-70 is a great example. You know, I look at I-70 and say, there's not that much space where you could put more lanes. You know, it's space where, because of the mountains that make Colorado beautiful, the road right-of-way is pretty limited. And, you know, I think that that's a perfect example of sort of the phenomenon where we can't build our way out of congestion because in some cases there's physically not the space to do it. You know, I-25, which we are moving at a steady pace on right now, you know, it has more space, but it's not unlimited. Are you saying that if you had all the space in the world, you'd build 10 lanes? I mean, I, I don't think that that's the most efficient way to deal with managing a system that's growing. If you look at big, dense cities and how they get people around, you know, they tend to hit a breaking point where driving is sometimes not the best option. I hear the head of CDOT saying she wants people to have more choice. That is correct. How often do you think about climate change? I think about climate change and the environment a lot, both in my professional life and as a citizen who loves the outdoors and is mindful of patterns that look different than they did 10, 20 years ago. In transportation, you actually have to think about these things in terms of what it means to take care of the roads, too. You know, a winter like we saw last season, you know, takes a heavy toll on the system and use that as an example and if something like what we saw in the last snow season became you know much more frequent if flooding became much more frequent you know that has a hefty cost from a transportation perspective and sort of understanding the you know emissions that vehicles create have a lot to do with the work that we do every day there are major expansion projects 
ongoing I-25 north and south of Denver, I-70 just north of downtown Denver, and yet Colorado has ambitious goals in the battle against climate change. How can Colorado both expand roads and try to cut greenhouse gas emissions at the same time? There are some roads that we just need to expand, and I-25 is a great example. The reality is that Colorado has a population that has grown and continues to grow, and you know, the roads were built at a time when it was servicing a much different population base. So, you know, a road like I-25, which is home to you know, well over 80% of the state's population, was not built for the population that it was serving. You know, that said, it doesn't mean that we don't think about more ways to move people efficiently and I would use the U.S. 36 corridor as a really good example of this. This is between Denver and Boulder. Yes, the U.S. 36 corridor between Denver and Boulder you know, was a CDOT expansion project um, in a public-private partnership. You know, one of the great innovations of that project is that the managed lane you know, both helps with demand management, you know, which helps from a congestion perspective. It also provides you know, a really efficient bus route. The Flatiron Flyer is, by the accounts of all who take it, one of the most efficient bus experiences in Colorado. And part of that is because we used our capacity expansion project to create a more efficient bus route. You know, that's a opportunity that exists in many, you know, highway projects. Like where? I-25 is a good example. You know, one of the things that we're looking at as we do our work to expand capacity on I-25 is can we build on our very successful busing service that goes up and down the I-25 corridor providing intercity bus service? You know, once we have those managed lands that are going to be part of that project, you know, we can run our own buses. Uh, you know, other, others can run buses in those rights of way, and suddenly there's a more efficient way to take public transit between cities along the Front Range. Is the bus, in a way, the near-term future of CDOT? I think the bus is part of the near-term future of CDOT, but, you know, it's, uh, it is not a one-size-fits-all problem, and it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. You know, it may be great for getting people to big inner-city hubs, you know. It doesn't replace the fact that technologies like ride-sharing, you know, can have a lot of promise, too. That being said, there's ways that can increase congestion, and there's ways that it can reduce congestion, right? You know, folks taking one-person Uber or lifts could make congestion worse, you know. Having more shared ride-sharing where multiple people carpool through a facilitated platform can be a small form of transit. I want to talk about transportation funding as we head towards the Denver Tech Center. Two statewide ballot measures failed last year, and so some elected officials are now talking about a regional approach which would require fewer people to vote yes. Uh, But it wouldn't help the entire state, naturally. What do you think of that approach? What you're seeing in the conversation about a regional approach is that people want to understand how dollars affect them. So I think part of what we're circling around in this conversation about whether funding occurs at different levels is about showing people the real impact of transportation dollars in delivering projects that are meaningful to them. Is it true that that hasn't been done enough? Might it just be that people don't want their taxes raised? There is always a challenge of kind of explaining to people clearly how big, complicated projects result in impact. That doesn't mean the money is being wasted in any big project. A large portion of that budget goes into functions like purchasing right-of-way, doing these sort of vital preparatory steps that don't translate into immediate impact for people. It's not surprising that that's sort of hard for people to understand. I'm sort of of the view that if you can't explain what you're doing to your neighbor, there's probably a problem with the way you're doing it. 
I hear that you think CDOT needs better communication in this regard. Your predecessor had a $9 billion backlog of road projects. Uh, and of course, CDOT didn't have the money to tackle many of them. But after you took over the job earlier this year, you threw that almost infamous list out. What would you say is the backlog then? You know, I'm not going to give you a number, which uh, is in part because we're still going through the exercise of defining different parts of the backlog. And it's also not an objective number. You know, there was a recent report by the Reason Foundation that, you know, ranked Colorado relative to our peer states on pavement quality. And it, you know, we, we got a pretty bad grade. You know, and I will say that even the list of just sort of fixing what's broken is you know, in the billions, not the millions. Once you get into the questions of capacity projects, there's a lot more sort of variables that you have to think about. We've had to drive around a little bit extra to finish the conversation. The commute was pretty efficient today. I feel a little guilty about the extra loop. (laughs) Shoshana, thank you for riding with me on my commute. Thank you for inviting me. That is CDOT's executive director, Shoshana Liu. She took over the department in February. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Orion spacecraft will be used to ferry people to and from the moon, following in the contrails of Apollo and the space shuttle. NASA is buying a fleet of Orions, up to a dozen of them, from Lockheed Martin in Littleton. Larry Price is deputy program manager for Orion at Lockheed. And hi, Larry. Good morning. Orion reminds me of the Apollo capsule that took people to the moon half a century ago. It's that same gumdrop shape. And it returns to Earth by splashing into the ocean with three giant parachutes. Why are those early designs still the best ones? Well, it's sort of like an airplane. It looks very similar to what it did in the early 20s or 30s. They learned a lot on Apollo and did it very well. At the beginning of this program, we studied a number of other shapes, very high-speed aircraft-looking, fighter jet-looking aircraft, but the teardrop seemed to be the best, lightest weight. When you compare it to airplanes, you're saying that fundamentally over time, airplanes have, of course, gotten more sophisticated and faster and all of that, but their fundamental design has not changed. Wings and tails. Wings and tails, and uh, that there's something to be said for than the gumdrop shape that was discovered early on. Uh, Orion is bigger than the Apollo capsule. It'll carry four people, I think, instead of three, and it's designed to be reusable. When you're designing a reusable spacecraft, I mean, given all of the forces it's facing, what must you keep an eye on? Well, there are a number of things for its life to be able to survive the high loads. You know, imagine launching in a rocket, the very extreme loads to get into space and the loads coming back again. And mass is everything. It takes about 83 pounds of propellant to get a pound to the moon. So weight is critical. Okay. And then surviving reentry has to be something you think about? A heat shield, obviously, and and what the plasma coming off of the spacecraft. You're going 25,000 miles an hour and need to slow down to about 300 
before the parachutes come out. I think of the tiles on the space shuttle. Are you going with tiles on Orion? The tiles from the space shuttle are used on the back shell, we call the back of the leeward side of the spacecraft. The heat shield itself is like Apollo's with a material that will ablate. It chars and burns away and takes the heat with it instead of trying to insulate against that heat. Ah, fascinating. And the idea then would be that if you're reusing the capsule, you are putting on a new heat shield. Correct. It's Rather than refly it if it was titanium or something and inspect it, be able to just carve it off and reuse it. Do you have to think about how a capsule survives salt water? given that it's going to return to the ocean? Well, yes. So we have to seal everything up. Besides floating, we have to watch about corrosion, even if it's just in the water for a few hours. Salt water gets in a lot of places and have to rinse it out. But even landing on land, there are horrible things about the dust in a desert that gets into everywhere also. Mm. Well, technology has certainly evolved dramatically since Apollo. I mean, I think of our smartphones being smarter than the components on those first lunar missions. How does technology, what is aboard Orion impact, the weight and versatility of the capsule? Much more versatile. The things that Apollo could do with a very small computer, we would compare them to like a pager rather than even your cell phone, but you can't even make a comparison anymore. The computer input was a a nine-digit input. The astronauts had to key in words using numbers. Just phenomenal what what we can do now. And what uh, abilities does the capsule have that, you know, that Apollo just never would have? Well, the capsule basically is entirely autonomous. It can fly itself. We don't need military pilots to be flying the spacecraft. Huh. Now scientists and doctors can be flying this, the vehicle. How long will it take to re- recycle a spacecraft? That is, if you want to reuse something, it plunges down into the ocean, how soon before it can be back in space? At the beginning, we'll do a lot of inspection to determine we knew what all the condition was. Uh, But after a while, we'll be able to recycle them in about a year. There must be a great efficiency in that. Well, in a rocket, you can imagine you see a rocket staging and you separate the stages on the way up to get lighter and lighter to get the velocity you need to. Yes. So I, had a, only... I had a toy that did that as a kid. Well, I'm not. that toy. <laughs> it's exactly. <laughs> it's the same physics. Um, so you can only bring back the piece of it. And so most valuable pieces are in the spacecraft, the computers and especially the astronauts. They're fairly valuable. Uh, So we'll be able to recycle all of that. At the beginning, we'll take components out, computers and such, but the intent is to be able to recycle the whole airframe once we've had time to inspect it and see that it survived well. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Larry Price. He's deputy program manager for the Orion spacecraft program at Lockheed Martin in Littleton. NASA has just put in an order for three spacecraft, price tag $2.7 billion dollars, And NASA apparently will buy three more in a few years. So the Trump administration has set a goal of landing Americans back on the moon in 2024. Many people think that's ambitious. Uh, In particular, the space launch system, that's the rocket Boeing is building for this, isn't quite ready. Is Orion ready? And do you think that we will launch people to the moon in 2024? Uh, the the launch vehicle is in final assembly and going into test in in uh, in at Stennis NASA Stennis in about a month. Where is Stennis? In Mississippi, Mississippi. Next to it's being assembled in uh, Louisiana. The Orion spacecraft. You might recall that the vice president announced its completion during the 50th anniversary of Apollo in uh, in Florida. So the spacecraft is done. 
And in about a month, we'll go up to Ohio and go into a thermal vac chamber to do environmental testing. And then in the spring, deliver it to the launch site for preparations for launch. A thermal vac chamber. Tell me what that is. Well, it's a great big chamber that they totally evacuate. So it's a pure vacuum. Uh, so that the spacecraft, and then heat it and cool it to see that all of the plumbing doesn't freeze and and all of the mechanical systems work in that severe temperature. Well, that's fascinating because we've talked about the heat that it's exposed to. Let's talk about the cold. What what are the conditions on that end? Oh, well, if you're not looking at the sun and you're staring into deep space, it's like minus 200 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So the spacecraft will rotate like a rotisserie to warm one side and cool the other side to do as much as you can with passive thermal control. Like a rotisserie. Okay, I appreciate that image. But it sounds like it might be possible that the capsule is ready in time for this 2024 goal, but that the rocket might not be? Well, it's in the ground operations process, too, of assembling the pieces. So there are the developments of these three major elements going on in parallel. And developing anything new, you run into some problems, even though some things have been done before. So sometimes one will get ahead of the other in this in this little horse race to get to the launch site. Moon to Mars is the Trump administration's vision. That is to say, using what we learn from trips to the moon to launch eventually to the red planet. Uh, what work will Orion need to be able to get to Mars? You are building it with that in mind, correct? The initial design, the initial requirements were always Moon and Mars and be able to go long duration. So the capsule is small so that it can do what we call anytime abort. If there's ever an emergency, you can turn around and come home like Apollo 13. When you're on the way to Mars, though, you know, you have to get around the planet and get the gravity to slingshot you back again. So it could be a three-year trip. So when we go to Mars, there'll be larger elements that go with us, propulsion capability and larger habitats, kind of like your RV going across across country with a small car towed behind it. But the Orion will be the significant brains with all the backup systems and redundancy and fault tolerant to keep the crew alive. Yeah, it occurs to me that if you are going to the moon, you might be able to put up with a four-person capsule But if you're going to Mars, which is incredibly far, that would very quickly become too confined. So the idea is that there would be a trailer, a a, a larger living space being hauled along? So like like your RV, you'd have a bigger volume like the original uh, Space Hab was before the space station. Not as large as space station, but an element that you'd have more room to get out and move around and get away from each other a little bit. But it would not have to be as sophisticated as the Orion capability. Okay. Have you been in Orion? Have you been in the capsule? Oh, yes. Uh, describe what you feel when you're in it. Well, it's like being in a small car, and everything is very uh, very thought through. Many engineering trade studies to see how everything fits. The seats, once you've gone through launch or before you land, the seats can be collapsed and set aside. There are sections of the spacecraft that have inherently more radiation shielding. So if there was a solar flare activity, the crew would go to that side of the capsule and move the equipment they have around with them, around them to protect themselves from the radiation. Because on your way to the moon and Mars, you're outside of the Van Allen radiation belts and the magnetic field that protects us here on Earth and our atmosphere. Oh, would you get claustrophobic if you had to spend... We can look out the windows. Okay. (laughs) Larry, this has been fascinating. Thanks for sharing this with us. Thank you very much. Larry Price is Deputy Program Manager for the Orion Spacecraft Program at Lockheed Martin in Littleton. Lockheed has about 1,000 people in Colorado working on this project. NASA just ordered six of the spacecraft with an option to buy six more. 
We're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The El Paso County District Attorney said Friday that a grand jury will consider whether to charge police in the shooting death of Devon Bailey. The 19-year-old from Colorado Springs died August 3rd. Officers shot him in the back as he fled from police responding to an armed robbery. The shooting sparked protests in the Springs, and the case was turned over to the sheriff's department for investigation. We want to understand what calling a grand jury says about the case. Law professor Ian Farrell from the University of Denver joins us. Ian, welcome to the program. It's nice to have you with us. Uh, what does this signal? I mean, the district attorney is an elected position. Is there an element of letting a third party decide the course of a potentially explosive case here, do you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening. Um, so in uh, Colorado, as compared to, say, in the federal criminal system, um, the the district attorney does not need to have a grand jury. And in the vast majority of cases, it's simply the district attorney himself who decides whether or not to uh, bring charges. And so um, what this signals, I think, is that, uh, as you said, uh, there is a need for a, or felt need for a grand jury to to make the decision rather than the district attorney. I imagine the district attorney could be in a situation where um, whichever decision he would make, he would be subject to criticism. And so by having the, the grand jury uh, make this decision, he can say that it's an impartial uh, body who's, um, who's making the decision rather than him. And, and w- when that body comes to a decision, is it binding in either direction? So if the, um, if the body decides uh, not to indict, not to bring charges, then uh, that uh, is binding unless there are new facts that, ar- that arise. Okay. Um, on the other hand, if the, if the um, body decides that they do want to indict, uh, the district attorney is not legally bound to proceed with that. However, um, it would defeat the purpose of putting it before the grand jury in the first place to not do that. And there would be political fallout, presumably, from that. Exactly. Um, one thing that's worth or important to keep in mind, though, in terms of the grand jury's role in this is that even though it is an impartial body, uh, it's usually 12 people like a like a trial jury, the district attorney has a very large role to play in the proceedings of the grand jury. So in addition to being the person who decides to bring the case to the grand jury, the district attorney is also the one who, um, for the most part, decides which evidence they hear, uh, which witnesses are called. The district attorney does the questioning of the witnesses. Um, and also the district attorney is kind of the legal advisor of the grand jury. So it is possible then that even the grand jury process could be seen as uh, tainted, for lack of a better term. It's not a completely independent process. Absolutely. Right. So it is very rare for grand juries to um, return an answer to the question that's put to them that's one that the district attorney doesn't want. So to give you an example, in the again, in the federal system, because that's where grand juries are most commonly used, mm-hmm. uh, a study was done a few years ago of uh, 192,000 grand juries. And um, you know, would you like to guess how in how many of those cases um, the grand jury decided not to indict? Uh, more than 50%? 11. Okay. And so the idea is that for the most part, um, prosecutors obviously want to charge a person they think has committed the crime. 
And so in the vast majority of cases in the federal system, 99.994%, um, the grand jury does in fact give um, the answer that the prosecutor wants, namely uh, an indictment. However, there is one class of cases in, in state courts right. where grand juries rarely indict. I'll, I'll have a guess at this. And is that when police are involved? Exactly. That's okay. when there are police, police are involved. So there's a real contrast there. There is, right. And so um, all of the information that the grand jury is deliberating on is provided by the district attorney. And the district attorney's information comes from the investigation that is done by police officers. And the grand jury, in fact, has um, an investigator appointed. And that is normally the lead investigator from the um, from the case as it was uh, investigated by the um, police and sheriff. And this would further underscore critics who say there's too much of a coziness among, right. among law enforcement, potentially. It is quite likely that this grand jury will have to consider the state's fleeing felon law. Just briefly tell us what that is, how it might be invoked. Right. So um, when we imagine someone who is not a police officer uh, arguing that they were acting in self-defense, um, the uh, that's the sort of the, the classic self-defense uh, rule, which is that um, you're entitled to defend yourself, uh, including with deadly force, if you d- believe that it is necessary to prevent an unlawful, uh, imminent use of force against you and your response is proportional to that. Um, the police, it's a little bit different. So in Colorado, you're exactly right. There is a, a, a rule in the statute that says that police are entitled to use deadly force um, if it is, if they reasonably believe it is necessary to affect the arrest of a person who, among other things, uh, has used a deadly weapon in uh, the offence that you're trying to arrest them for. And remember, at the heart of this is a suspected armed robbery. That's what police were investigating. And, and this is why uh, shooting someone in the back is not an absolute conviction of an officer. Correct. So the argument would be, uh, even though the person is literally running away from the officer um, and has not pointed the gun at the officer or anything like that, the argument is that they were trying to arrest them. The, um, I, some of the people listening may have seen the body cam footage that's been online, and it's fairly clear. In the Devon Bailey case. Uh, in, yeah. the, in the Devon Bailey case, um, one of the officers is about to pat down the suspect who has his hands above his head and he runs away from the police. The other officer chases after him and then um, shoots him as he is fleeing. He does not turn around. He does not seem to threaten the officer in any way. Um, The question here, I think, will be, um, was it reasonable for the officer to believe that it was necessary to use deadly force to affect the arrest. In other words, were there not any other non-lethal alternatives? And this was in um, in broad daylight, in the middle of a suburban street. Um, and so I think that will be the question that uh, the grand jury has to address. We have less than a minute. Grand jury proceedings are closed to the public. Uh, how soon are we likely to hear the outcome, do you think? So that's a great question. It's actually a question I asked some of my um, attorney colleagues, and they gave me the answer that I so often frustrate my own students with, uh-huh. which is, it depends on the case. Um, but probably a month or two I, is the rough um, timeline that I would go with. 
Ian, thanks for helping us understand the grand jury process. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Ian Farrell is a professor at DU's Sturm College of Law, and we talked about a grand jury in the police shooting case of Devon Bailey in Colorado Springs. First graders brought weapons to the same Colorado Springs area elementary school in recent weeks. One was a handgun, another a pellet gun. School officials say the students did not intend to injure or threaten. Still, as CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce finds, the incidents have people talking about safe gun storage around children. Hearing that there was a gun here with my son, it worried me right off the bat. You think the worst, especially with everything going on right now. That's Cynthia Kissel waiting for her son to finish his day of kindergarten at Falcon Elementary School of Technology located northeast of Colorado Springs. The incident on September 26th began when a first grade student showed a school staff member a single bullet. The staffer alerted security who found the handgun in the student's backpack. It was loaded with a single round of the wrong caliber. School District 49 would not grant an interview for this story, but said on the school's website the gun was quickly secured and the El Paso County Sheriff's Office will conduct a thorough investigation into how the student got a hold of the gun. Again, parent Cynthia Kissel. I don't really put any blame on the school. In my opinion, I do think it's the parents' fault. I mean, there's no reason a kid that age should have something, you know, like that. Then on Monday afternoon, another scare at Falcon Elementary. This time, another first grader bringing in a realistic-looking toy pellet gun. Emmy Betts is an emergency physician at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She focuses on firearm injury prevention. We know that kids are... Curious. Kids are often impulsive. Their brains are not fully formed. The American Association of Pediatrics says unintentional firearm injuries for children ages 5 to 14 are 10 times higher in the U.S. than other high-income countries. The AAP says the safest home for kids is one without guns, but that in a home with firearms, they should be unloaded and locked up. So that can be in a lockbox. It can be with a trigger lock, a cable lock. There's lots of different ways to do that. But the main thing is it shouldn't just be hidden somewhere. I mean, kids find stuff. However, a 2015 Harvard survey found that in 20 percent of U.S. homes with both firearms and children, the guns are not locked up and even stored loaded. At the Whistling Pines Gun Club in Colorado Springs, sales associate David Sweat recommends a two-lock approach for storing guns in homes with kids. He says this two-lock system was drilled into his mind during his time in the military, when his weapon was in storage. There was a vault lock, and then there was a lock out of that that locked the building that it was located in. In the military, you had that. Mm -hmm. As an example, he demonstrates putting a pistol in a small lockbox, then putting that box inside a bedside table his company sells with a hidden locked compartment. Sweat also brings up another point. He worries cases like this at Falcon Elementary won't be seen as individual parents' negligence, but will instead be lumped in with the wider and very heated national discussion around school shootings. You know, you see a headline on the news and it's not going to say, like, a complete accident. It's just going to say first grader brings a gun to school. And that's what kind of drives this fear and doubt, which it's not misplaced, but a lot of times it is misunderstood. 
A survey released just this week from American Public Media shows more than three-quarters of Americans support mandating locked gun storage, including nearly 70 percent of Republicans and nearly 90 percent of Democrats. In Colorado, while adults can be held responsible if a kid gets a hold of their gun, there is no law for how a firearm must be stored. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. And we'll be right back with a bee in our bonnet. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. By now, I'm sure that we're not breaking the news that CBD is everywhere. It's the new kale, the new superfood, whatever you want to call it. But what is it? And how did something that is made from cannabis, which is still illegal in many states, become part of a never-ending national wellness industry spin cycle? Find out on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR News. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A rare creature lives in the White Rocks Nature Preserve east of Boulder. It's an area Cooper Jager of Erie has hiked for more than a decade, and he's been curious. Well, I'd heard a rumor about a bee that lived in a cliff in eastern Boulder County. And part of the rumor was that it only existed there and nowhere else in the world. And so I got to wondering about if that was true, and also if there were other species unique to our beautiful state. He got in touch with us through Colorado Wonders, and my colleague Avery Lill met him at the CU Museum of Natural History, where they met Virginia Scott. Well, it's one of our little native species of bees. It's Macrotera opuntiae, and it's known as the bee that mines in stone. Scott manages the entomology collection at CU Boulder. It's a room crowded with row after row of metal filing cabinets, and each cabinet holds dozens of drawers of insect specimens pinned to canvas behind glass. Every bug is meticulously labeled. We are an insect collection, so we're kind of like a library, but instead of books, we have drawers of insects. And our little bees happen to be in this drawer right here. These are the bees. Oh my gosh, they're tiny. They're pretty small. When I think of bees, I think of bees in hives and trees and fuzzy little guys flying around during the year, but these are mining bees and they're different. They're different. They're one of our native species of bees. They are small or about seven millimeters long. They are basically bald and they're black and red. And where are they in Colorado? They occur at White Rocks. That's where they were originally found. It occurs in a few other places in Colorado. We know there's records from nowadays, um, Texas and South Dakota as well. So their mandibles must be incredibly sharp and hard if they're going to be digging in rock. Bee mandibles are pretty hard, yeah. And their habitat is very specific. It's very specific. They only nest in areas with this particular rock formation. They like these turtleback sandstone formations. And that's what they nest in. And they also need a particular type of cactus as well, is that they right? They grow a prickly pear. So you have to have the prickly pear, you have to have the right kind of rocks, and then you have these bees. And what kind of a role do they play in the ecosystem? Well, they pollinate cactus. So would it be fair to say that prickly pear cactus rely on these bees? Uh, well, there's a lot of bees that specialize on cactus. Cactus have really big pollen grains. So actually about a third of our 
bees around here will specialize and only go to a particular type of plant. We have specialists that go only go to willow. We have specialists that only go to sunflowers. And cactus is one of those plants that it seems like once the bees start specializing on that, the hairs that they carry the pollen on become less dense and they, they're kind of stuck in this, we got to go to cactus in order to collect pollen because they can't handle pollen from other plants. But we have about um, over 950 bee species in Colorado. So we have a wide variety. We have almost a quarter of all the known bees from the continental United States here in the state. And is that more than other states? Well, California tops it. Um, but California has deserts and bees are, um, they really become diversified in desert areas. And how are the health of the populations of Colorado bees right now? Well, I think all insects are kind of in trouble. Tell me a little more about that. Well, we poison our environment and we um, plow up fields and we pave things and we get rid of insect food and we don't like insects, so we spray them and kill them. And then our bird populations start declining and it's not good. And what about for these types of bees in particular? Well, these types of bees are, um, they're, these live on a protected chunk of property, um, which is very nice. Um, as long as you have the right rock and you have some cactus, they're going to do okay. And you mentioned that human attitudes toward insects, that really affects an insect population. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about bees? I think the biggest misconception about bees is that they're all social. They're not. Almost 20% of our bees here in Colorado are parasitic. They actually get into the nests of other bees and lay their eggs. So they're like the cowbirds or the European cuckoo birds that um, lay their eggs in the nests of other bees. So typically when people think of bees, they think of honeybees. When they draw a bee, they draw a bumblebee. But in reality, our bees are just much more diverse than that. And Cooper, what else would you like to know about these bees? I am pleased, actually, in the end, that they have more locations than just this one. The location diversity would help them survive. I do have one more question. So when I hear about colony collapse disorder... That's only honeybees. Okay, gotcha. And honeybees are basically livestock, so they're not that important to our ecosystem from a pollination standpoint because they didn't evolve here. That is very comforting to know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. Avery Lill speaking with Virginia Scott, who manages the entomology collection at the CU Natural History Museum in Boulder. We also heard from Cooper Jager of Erie, who asked a question through Colorado Wonders. So what do you wonder about? Send us your questions at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Colorado's sweeping new oil and gas law was one of the biggest political fights in state history. Its bill number 181 has become a shorthand for changes in how Colorado deals with drillers. But after six months, most energy companies say it's no big deal yet. Here's CPR business reporter Ben Marcus. 
So I thought I'd start this story about complex oil and gas regulations from a noisy drill rig. But that's not really what I found here in Broomfield. So the fact that you're not hearing a lot of really loud diesel noise right now uh, is something that we're very proud of. We were uh, among the first to bring electric rigs to Colorado and to this basin. That's Brian Kane with Extraction Oil and Gas. Standing next to the rig, you can't help but be in awe of its size. It's easy to see why many in the nearby sprawling suburban neighborhoods were not happy to see it go up. This is a controversial operation. But the company contends that this is among the cleanest drill rigs of its kind, and they say it's the future of drilling in Colorado. You know, I think Colorado's changing. Um, Colorado changed with SB 181. Senate Bill 181. It seemed like a dramatic shift for oil and gas companies in Colorado. The bill bolsters local governments that want to add new rules. It gives the state more teeth to clamp down on operators, too. The industry came out hard against it, sparing little expense on TV ads as it moved through the legislature. They're trying to ignore the voters and pass a law in the middle of the night to shut down energy production in Colorado. Now, new regulations are still spinning out of the law but it's clear that it won't shut down energy production. Colorado's on pace to post record oil output again this year. And Colorado's largest oil drillers have all expressed confidence in their federal financial filings that they can easily navigate the changes. For now, at least. Michael Orlando is an economist who consults with local energy companies. He says they recognize that it won't be the pure number of barrels of oil they can drill that sets them apart. The thing that differentiates companies is how sophisticated are they in dealing with the social reality that they they live and work in. And responding to that social reality means altering drilling plans or adding clean technology like extraction has done at its Broomfield well. But that all costs money. And Orlando says the bigger companies can better spread the impact of that cost. If you don't have a large organization over which to spread it, it could be the decisive factor. Like it was for PetroShare. That's a small oil and gas driller that filed for bankruptcy protection several weeks ago, blaming the new regulations in Colorado. Bernadette Johnson, an energy analyst, says there's no doubt that regulations will have a financial impact. But... I think the bigger implication for bankruptcies and those types of things is just the quality of your resource. Are you in a good area with good rock? And Wall Street has cut off what once was free-flowing capital. Investors aren't wasting time with marginal drillers anymore, no matter what state they operate in. And that brings us back to Broomfield. Even as extraction oil and gas touts its ability to drill with minimal impact and comply with new regulations, there are still bitter fights on the horizon. Neighbors have filed more than 200 complaints with the city of Broomfield for noise, traffic, odor. Mackenzie Kerrigan lives near the well. We had our windows open one night. We turned our whole house fan on, and the fumes that came into my house were gagging my children in their beds. Air monitors nearby show very small increases in emissions during drilling. Emissions that are well below health standards. Broomfield's air quality contractor, though, did find a link between drilling operations and when odor complaints spiked. Nevertheless, Kerrigan is part of a group of residents organized against extraction's Broomfield operation. You know, the the really, I think, horrifying thing for me is that this exists in the middle of my neighborhood. And this illustrates the risk of operating in Colorado's urban areas. Drillers believe they can work with communities and even thrive under Senate Bill 181 and tough new regulations. But many of those who live near the rigs won't stop fighting until they're gone for good. I'm Ben Marquez, CPR News. And finally today, a young artist who took Ecuador by storm now has her sights set on Colorado. Weather vet. 
Dreamy dance pop sent her to the top of the charts in her home country, but she and her producer felt stuck. So a year ago, they packed up and moved to Denver. The transition proved difficult. 18-year-old Naoma didn't speak English, but the music community welcomed her with open arms. She has already played the Underground Music Showcase and recently released her first song in English titled Young. Baby, just take me home. Don't want to do this alone. Remember when you were young, this used to hurt. Baby, this is out of control. You can't deny my love. Remember when you were young, this used to hurt. But you can stay if you wanna, if you wanna. Or you can take me out, take me out of this town. But you can stay if This is Naoma from Denver by way of Cuenca, Ecuador. She's one of the artists recently featured by our colleagues at Indie 1023, and you can catch her at Lion's Lair in Denver this Sunday. And that's Colorado Matters for today from Studio 2A in Centennial. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.